be nice, be kind uh, as we uh, as we move forward. So I like that. All right, I did. I got it. We are we are now recording. I was being distracted. I know, but but those that are just now listening to this recording later, they're going to say, "What did what did we miss?" And it was a great comic. You should have been here. <laughs> All right. Let me, we're gonna, we were talking last week about Joseph uh, being presented with uh, Egyptian mummies and papyri and starting to dig into it and within a couple of days that he had possession of these from Michael Chandler he looks through it and he says there are writings of Abraham there are writings of Joseph and, and, and I'm getting in fact he actually uh, uh, is able to reveal Abraham 1 and part of Abraham 2 in that first three days that he has the papyri in front of him and then he comes back and says yeah we'll buy it uh, how much $2,400 uh, that's an astronomical sum but they're able to raise the money and buy the buy the four mummies and two large rolls of papyrus and some fragments now Here's my question then. Why would a prophet with revelatory ability and years of experience need to study languages? Because what happens now, this is in July, and, he, and th from now until October, every spare moment that Joseph will have, he and uh, Oliver Cowdery, and, uh, but especially W.W. Phelps, are busy digging through, looking at, trying to understand, trying to match up uh, letters to words and see if they couldn't come up with an Egyptian alphabet uh, and they're just pouring over these things and a lot of the writings we have now show that they were way off in a number of their cases where they're just trying to know how to do this but uh, with Joseph's ability even those first couple of days to just sit down and out comes Abraham uh, 1 and 2 why would he be so interested in studying Egyptian and other and other things like that as well well it seems like he wouldn't have to he'd just get it by revelation <laughs> what's that so, so you're saying the Lord doesn't? That's not necessarily the way the Lord works. He requires us to be able to do those kind of learning. Okay. I like that. What else? Yeah. Just we're expected to use the what's already been revealed. Sure. Yeah. In other words, th those things are there, and he's saying, go ahead and grab those kind of things. Okay. Right. The wheel's turning, yeah. The one thing, the more we know, the more we understand, the better questions we can ask. Ah, I, li I like that when he says, the more we understand, the better questions we can ask. Um, sometimes when I, we don't, when we're trying to prepare people to go to the temple, the question is, what questions to ask? They don't know what they should know. Uh, but the more knowledge we have, uh, that helps. So, uh, so here's my question. What does that say about our need for academic learning? We need it. Yeah, we do need it. In fact, I, we were just talking about before that uh, I read a, a great quote uh, this, 
this past week from Brigham Young uh, who said uh, one day uh, as we read the, the, this earth will be celestialized it will be turned into a large Urim and Thummim and it will be like living on a sea of glass he says that sea of glass will be created by angels with a knowledge of chemistry how about that so there are natural laws under which things work. And how are we supposed to understand that if we don't have that knowledge and push ourselves to understand better these kind of things? Chemistry's not your favorite thing. Yeah. And I imagine there'll be some math involved in that as well. Yeah. Okay. So... It's interesting. So one of the reasons why Joseph is being pushed, I, I, I do think there's a very human reason that Joseph Smith is being pushed. In his life for so long, one of the things that we keep seeing over and over is Joseph believes that often everybody's smarter than he is. I don't know how far he ever got behind the, the backwoods rural uh, uh, plowboy uh, who always felt that Oliver and Sidney and even Martin Harris and everybody always knew more than he did. And I think he was always running to f- catch up uh, with everything that was going on. Um, but part of it, the, the Lord's pushing him a bit. Uh, here's here's uh, a few verses I pulled out. Uh, section 88. As, as uh, all have not faith, seek ye diligent and teach one another words of wisdom. Seek ye out of the best books, word of wisdom. Does that necessarily mean religious books? No. To find the best books wherever you can. Seek learning even by study and also by faith. In other words, Joseph understood that not all knowledge was coming directly from heaven, that the Lord had already inspired a number of very intelligent people um, to write things and and kind of the history of the ages. And, And Joseph, again, always saw himself as a compiler of truth and knowledge wherever he found it. Uh, that's why I always laugh when somebody when somebody's attacking the church and they say, "Well, Joseph got that idea from Adam Clark, or he got that from I don't know Socrates." And I go, "Yeah, he did." In other words, he saw truth and knowledge and information wherever he could get it, and he would grab it and embrace it and hold on to it. Okay, yeah. I went back to school and got finished my degree when I was 54, and it was amazing to me as I took these classes. What a different perspective I had when I, compared to yeah. when I was younger. You know, my geology class was just wow, and and I just related so much of Heavenly Father's plan to to what you re- at, so at 54 you understood things a whole lot differently than you did when you were 18 and and the smartest generation that ever walked the planet (laughs) okay that we're supposed to go out and gather that knowledge and gather that information and then be able to fit it together with the things that that we find okay section 90 and when you're finished with the translation of the prophets the old testament you shall henceforth preside over the affairs of the church and the school what school School of the Prophets. What were they studying in School of the Prophets? 
everything. <laughs> you know, uh, their writing skills. Uh, there was some history stuff going on there. Uh, not just faith and those kind of things. It's like we ha- we need educated people to be able to go out and share the gospel. Why? What difference does an educated person make? I'll be teaching educated people. To be actually converse with and talk with other educated people, you gotta know you gotta know some stuff here. Okay? Now, there is there there's always this tension that we have. Uh, well in fact, hold on I'll hold on to that. Here's uh, Verily I say unto you that it's my will that you should hasten to translate my scriptures to obtain a knowledge of history, of countries, of kingdoms, of laws of God and men, and all this for the salvation of Zion. Okay? Now, here's where the tension lies, I think, in the church. Doesn't the Book of Mormon say, though when they are learned, they think they are wise? <coughs> How do we balance that? How do we balance this need to learn versus that? Yeah. Humility. Uh, humility in what way? Well, that you realize you don't know everything. You can't know everything. And that you, you put things in proper context. And you, you analyze things from a, from a humble standpoint so that you don't get over uh, infused with your own which is which is always that that, that brilliance thing, and, and when when you learn those kind of things, is always a danger for those in academia, uh, right? Because it's like they begin to think that they know, and you and if they don't have the humility, uh, I don't know. In my in my stuff, even in in just kind of my minor little areas, the more I study, the more I realize I don't know, and and so suddenly the thing is bigger. Yeah. Uh, it also says in the Book of Mormon that learning is good if we use it to serve God, right. our fellow man. And then it's it is good. It's not foolishness. It's not right. But there's there's the balance. There's there's the danger that we face. Yeah. Learn spiritual things right along the way. We're trying to put, we're trying to put the spiritual things alongside the learnedness. And and to combine them at times. Whenever I study science. And it rings true. The Spirit testifies that it's true. And so I'm growing in both areas. Sure. But the, the, the struggle, I think, in the, in the academy, in, in uh, academic circles, is always this idea that, that there's, there's, sins, there's often a trend away from religiosity and the magic uh, and the, and the uh, faith without any kind of evidence thing. And so I, I think there is, a, there is a danger that lies there. And yet the Lord is saying to us, no, go learn more. Go learn. Uh, I was I was uh, I was uh, listening to a podcast the other day. It was very interesting about uh, when the saints got to Utah, uh, and and Brigham Young was looking around, going, "We're pretty isolated out here in the Great Basin." Uh, and they would they started to pick out people uh, that were going to be sent abroad. And abroad was like Michigan. <laughs> abroad was off to Harvard, where they could get medical degrees and and uh, all kinds of things to gather that knowledge and then do what? 
bring it back. So we had all of these educational missions pouring out of Utah to go out to the good, to the great uh, institutions of the land, gain the knowledge and bring it back. When they got ready to, uh, wanted to decorate the temple, they, they recognized a group of people, uh, Minerva Teichart was one of these, to say, you guys have some artistic talent. What did they do? Sent them to Europe and had them learn how to paint and to paint well and have a great knowledge of, of artistry and then do what? Bring it back. Okay, I think, I think there's a pressing need for that, that, that academic uh, understanding. And I think we need to be pushing ourselves always. Okay, yeah. Um, when I took geology, my professor was an atheist. Yeah. And I can remember going to Brother Palmer. I, I, I didn't quite know how to handle a few of the things that he was pushing. And Brother Palmer told me the more he learned about theology, the more he believed in the creation. Sure, sure. Uh, and, and I've mentioned before uh, Stephen... What's his name? Anyway... Uh, prominent geologist, uh, BYU professor, is the one who uh, uh, prayed to know if there was a, how to reconcile his understanding of evolution with, with the creation. And he prayed and prayed and prayed. And finally, uh, one night he, he heard, an, he heard a, a voice actually say, there is an answer. Oh. And that was it. <laughs> so he says, I believe in evolution strongly. I'm also a believer in the Garden of Eden and all that. I don't know how it necessarily jives, but I believe in both. Yeah. I think one of the problems that somebody mentioned humility. Yeah. That if you learn something, you think maybe you're smarter than somebody else who hasn't learned that. But the, the reality of it is there's always going to be someone who knows more than you. If you know one language, there's going to be somebody who knows two. If you think you know this much about math, there's somebody who, someone else who knows more. And the thing is to continually learn. There's yeah. going to be some way that you can learn something. Yeah. The, so so here's, here's where my concern is, and, I, and I'm going to kind of voice this from time to time. Here's my concern. Um, <coughs> We are, we have, we have these wonderful, it's going to sound like I'm slamming a church program. I'm walking carefully. We have these great programs, including President uh, Nelson's uh, uh, guidelines to the sisters to finish the Book of Mormon between now and the end of the year. And I think that's terrific, and I think that's a great, and we ought to do it. And we, then I see all these great scriptural plans for how to get through the Book of Mormon in a year, how to get through the Book of Mormon in 90 days or six months or something like that. And so you get up every morning, you read eight verses or something like that, and then you, then you can check the box, and I did my eight verses, and then I can go about my day because I did it. That's, re that's reading the Book of Mormon in 90 days. And there's a certain spiritual strength and buttressing that you get from doing that on a daily basis, even if you're not necessarily understanding the words. To dive into the Book of Mormon on a daily basis is to raise your level of spirituality like, like no other book on the planet. And to follow the prophet. And to follow the prophet has its own strength. It's more important goal right. was for us to 
Christ. That's right. So now you're marking the scriptures as you're as you're coming there. Every time you see Christ's name, you're so great program, great project. Uh, don't abandon your scriptural study for that, and don't confuse the two. Because you're completing a task and you're raising the level and you're doing that. But that's to me that's different from I'm looking at a verse and I don't understand this word. So I'm going to cross over to here and I'm going to look at the other words that match up with that. And I may have to dive in. I may have to Google something. And I may have to see what somebody else has written on there. And then, and then what happens? You go, yeah, but I only, I only gave myself 20 minutes to read this and I only got one verse. Now I'm behind. So I can't, I can't take the time to cross-reference with the other sources because then I'm going to get way behind and I won't make it by December 31st. The, the, the ability to read the Book of Mormon daily and study the scriptures, I think you need to see as two separate projects. Because you will. it took us two and a half years to get through the Book of Mormon one time. And even then we ended up skipping some big sections. Okay? But that's because we dug and we opened up and we looked at things. And I think the scriptures and the church need to be done by learning. Um, I'm looking really forward. I, I think I've mentioned uh, for the upcoming... In fact, I, I was... Let me tell you about an interesting meeting I had yesterday. We were doing our, our teacher council meeting. And as it turned out, in our third hour, we re, I really just had my presidency and my gospel doctrine teacher. And I said, okay... Bella, here we go. I said, in, in my the way I'm looking at this, um, as we roll into January, there's going to be a lot of weeks where we have two speakers in sacrament meeting and you. The whole ward, uh, you're going to be the star of the show, and I need it to be good. <laughs> I need it to be well prepared. Uh, we're going to actually be in this room, and he's going to be able to, he used my projector yesterday, and he's starting to get the hang of the, yeah, I'm starting to do PowerPoint. Great, you do it, uh, and, and we're going to be in there, and we'll make sure he's set up, we'll get the big screen. You've got to be good. You've got to be solid. And, and I said, and we're getting the, into the New Testament. Okay, now, I said, you need to become acquainted with BYU's uh, program that they're doing where they've got select professors that are writing uh, commentaries and books on an AA book in the New Testament. So far we have the book of Luke, which I'm, I'm almost done with and is just fabulous. Uh, a commentary, that, and we have uh, 1 Corinthians and we have Revelations. The one that I'm waiting on should be out by the end of the year by Eric Huntsman on the book of John. Okay, well, here's these in-depth commentaries, a few verses at a time, with, with background information, not just from the Joseph Smith translation, but, what, but current archaeology, what we're finding on this, and what the scholars have been able to put together. And they are really, really well done, but that means pulling the verses apart, just a few verses at a time. Okay, and I said, you're going to have to be acquainted with these books, so that you can pull all of that. What's that? They are. Uh, if they're on uh, Amazon. Um, in fact, um, I'll do this. You get to see the uh, books I'm reading. Yeah, I know. That's a little weird.
right there. The Testimony of Luke by Kent Brown. That that's a uh, like I say that's a BYU. Um, actually, it's a it's a I don't know I don't think BYU produced it. I think it's religious education did it. Um, but yeah, the, and it's and it's just incredibly well done. And if anybody is in this room is going to be teaching any kind of gospel doctrine or stuff for the coming year, you got to have this. You need to have that book. Um, So, so this gives you an idea um, where he's just kind of going through uh, and giving you information about these things in the book of Luke. And the thing that I like about this is, uh, so he's talking about discipleship, and, and on one side he writes the traditional one, which is this one, and he said to them all, and then the other side is his... his uh, rewording of it now based on knowledge and information that we have uh, over there. And then there's a commentary that comes after that. It's just, it's brilliant. But it's something that you walk through slowly as, as a resource. Okay? So in other words, we're to the point, if you're going to study the New Testament, you need a study Bible. Because uh, I also have um, uh, this one. Uh, second one down here. After the Longmire mysteries, those are those are important. Uh, the New Oxford Annotated Bible with Apocrypha, the New Revised Standard Version. Most of the 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 the, the uh, church scholars in this will say, make sure you have a study Bible. And this is probably the one that I've heard them recommend the most. It's the New Oxford uh, Annotated Bible. And when you have a question about a verse, you go, oh, let me see what the New Oxford says. Let me see what Kent Brown says in the book of Luke. And so you're pulling all this stuff together to say, let me understand this verse. That's study. That's academic study uh, and kind of digging in a little bit. And it's not going to fit a 20-minute uh, reading thing, which you're still needing to do. Have I made that point clear? Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm not saying don't do that. Do that. Prophets want us to do this, and there's great spiritual power in that. But don't neglect your study, and don't confuse the two. The Bishop's Pond is wonderful. Yeah, yeah, it was good. But it's the Craig Johnson books of the, of the Longmire that are the really... It's like, it's like my favorite author, and he is a terrific author. Um... What other books have I got here? Oh, yeah. And then Thomas Wayman did a wonderful one from Prosecutor, Persecuted up, up to Apostle, the biography of Paul. <laughs> there are just a bunch of them here. Okay. And they're great stuff. And then, and then uh, from Darkness Unto Light and Joseph Smith's Searstones, either the things coming from the, uh, from the authors of the Joseph Smith papers, where they're now trying to write specific books in depth about some of these topics. And I, I've. Yes. Yeah. All right. Great stuff. So, do you get a sense of that? You get a flavor of what, uh, of what we're trying to do and what Joseph was trying to do. Okay. All right. Here we go. Back to... Okay. You're going to drive me crazy here. Okay. So, questions on that? So, again, 
Joseph was trying to then now combine as much knowledge from any source that he could get it as quickly as he could, uh, and he wa he wasn't going to limit himself uh, at all. Uh, just to kind of, uh, it, not that he had uh, Mormon sources at the time, but. Um, So that said, yeah. Um, one of the favorite stories that I learned when I was in the church um, was about John A. Bidso, where he had studied for years and he was trying to pull together all this data and this one formula. I read it in the book by Herman Madsen. Yeah. And how he finally just he couldn't come up with it, so he went to the temple and just kind of, or, you know, pretty sad because he hadn't found it and wanted to bring it to the temple. That chemical formula. Okay. He saw. He said he saw that in light and in the temple. Yeah. Yeah. She she relates to uh, Truman Madsen tells the story of John A. Witzel. If you haven't heard this, where he was struggling with trying to complete a book and a, an understanding of uh, some advanced chemistry kind of thing, and in and felt like he failed and went to the temple kind of for solace. And there in the temple, he looked up and he saw kind of written in light the formula that he'd been looking for, uh, and was able to then take that. And then he and then two books came out of that experience in the temple. So, the Lord intends us to know this stuff. Yeah. Um, regarding the comments that were made about um, the creation and atheism and stuff, Bob and I saw a really interesting program on the Science Channel about that was interviewing all the original astronauts, the ones who went to the moon, the ones. Who yeah. Uh huh. And uh, very interesting from their point of view. And one of them made this amazing comment at the end. He said. After being up there and seeing basically the whole picture, he said, there is no question in mind that there, in my mind, that there has to be a grand design for all of this. Yeah. In fact, I think Buzz Aldrin became a pastor, didn't he? I think he did. Or, or if it wasn't pastor, it at least became deeply involved in those kind of things. So, all right. Well, that said. Then let's, let's look at kind of what propelled Joseph forward. So here comes the mummies. And he's got these, and again, four mummies, two large scrolls. We think about 100 feet long scrolls. Uh, he wasn't so much interested in the mummies. He was thrilled by the papyrus. And, and part of what we think drove him, um, this is... This is uh, he, uh, here, I'm, I'm going to pronounce it wrong. Hieroglyphics. It's it's not it's 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 uh, the it's like the cursive form of Egyptian. It's how you write uh, language in in ancient Egyptian. Okay, so this hieroglyphics. Okay, this is what he was seeing on the this kind of stuff is what he was seeing on the papyrus scrolls. And what was intriguing about those papyrus scrolls and what uh, and immediately got his attention is that he had seen something similar uh, coming off of the gold plates. So, so this is this is what the this is the writing this is what the writing looked like on the plates, and they're not exactly the same. Um, how come they're different? 
What were the plates written in? Reformed, Reformed Egyptian. <coughs> right. But there were enough characters looking back and forth. Joseph and, and Oliver looking at this and going, we've seen this stuff before. It's very, very close. And they recognize it. And there was some excitement about that. That's one of the reasons why Chandler, a great marketing technique from a guy who's trying to sell mummies and scrolls, says... Why don't you test drive it? Take it home for about three days. See what you think. <laughs> you know. And after Joseph takes it home and he's doing some research and translating all of this, there's no way he was going to say that was really cool stuff, Chandler. Why don't you take? We're done now. <laughs> no, no, dude, we got to have this. <laughs> so that's why they were at a time when when uh, they still got to redeem Zion and their people still living in tents in Missouri and they're trying to finish the temple. He says. We got to come up with $2,400 to buy these scrolls because these are valuable. Okay? All right. So, so he's got all those and he's looking back and forth and they spend months trying to figure out. And Joseph is running around. So the, the primary person pushing behind all of this is W.W. Phelps. And W.W. Phelps is working overtime trying to understand and put it together and uh, came to understand it as much as he could. But it's strictly amateur hour with these guys. Um, sometimes people have looked at the things that they produced, Egyptologists now are looking at it and go, well, Joseph Smith was actually wrong on trying to figure out the, the alphabet. Well, yeah, he was. <laughs> These were amateurs. And a lot of it was W.W. W. Phelps. It wasn't even Joseph. Okay? So, all right. So, Part of, I think, what propels him to, repels, propels. Wouldn't repel him, it would propel. Mormon, uh, chapter 9. And now behold, we have written this record according to our knowledge in the characters which are called among us the Reformed Egyptian. Egyptologists won't say, gee, there's a, a language out there called Reformed Egyptian. It was what the Nephites called it. We call this Reformed Egyptian. Okay? Uh, being handed down and altered by us according to the manner of our speech. Uh, by the way, uh, because they weren't running around speaking Reformed Egyptian, they were speaking some form probably of Mayan or, or something like that. Uh, who could read Reformed Egyptian in the Book of Mormon? Just a side note. Only those with the Urim and Thummim. Those perhaps with the Urim and Thummim. And particularly, who's going to have that? The prophet. The prophet and the scribes. The other prophets that are writing it. In other words, uh, like Mormon, if, you're gonna, if your dad knows you're going to probably one day have the records, or Amaron is going to say to him, we're going to give you the records, at some point as a boy, he has to start learning this language. It's not a spoken language. It is a language reserved for the record keepers. This Reformed Egyptian thing. Okay? Uh, and... If our plates had been sufficiently large, we would have written in what? Hebrew. But the Hebrew hath, all, hath been altered by us also. And if we had written in Hebrew, therefore, we would have no imperfection in our record. What's he saying? What's better than Reformed Egyptian? Hebrew. Ha ha. And, and, there, and with that, it would have been accurate. 
But because we're writing Reformed Egyptian, uh, we got problems. Some things don't translate over from Egyptian. Ah, oh, well. But the Hebrew is going to take up more space on the plates. But the Lord knoweth the things which we have written, and also that none other people knoweth our language, and because that none other people knoweth our language, therefore he hath prepared the means for the translation, or the interpretation thereof. Okay? So out of this, if Joseph's translating this, he's saying, Ooh, what is better than Egyptian? Hebrew. Wow. Okay. So if I've got Egyptian stuff in front of me and I'm having a, and I we can't figure it out, what would be the best way to unlock the translation of the Egyptian and therefore give us the words of uh, Abraham and thus give us and thus confirm the Book of Mormon and all that? What what should we be studying? Hebrew. Hebrew. Which is what happens in November. After trying through October and beating their heads against the wall on the Egyptian, the way that we will unlock the book of Abraham is we have to start studying Hebrew. So they went, so they went to the Google and Thummim and started studying Hebrew. They ran down to the bookstore and got Hebrew books and just did a crash course on... No. <laughs> There's the problem. <laughs> really? We're sitting here in Kirtland. How do we learn Hebrew? I don't know. Yeah, we're going to have to find somebody to teach us. But we don't necessarily know somebody. This is, this is the Western Reserve. We're kind of on the edge of society here. There's not a lot of Jews running around in Kirtland. <laughs> So what they do, uh, from November to January, they start a self-study. They, they, they do send um, Oliver Cowdery off to New York, and he comes back with a stack of Hebrew books to kind of self-study on this thing. Okay. Now, l l let me just stop for a sec. There was, and I don't think I put it in here. No, I haven't. A um, little historical background. Um, there was a sense uh, among uh, prominent Protestant preachers like Jonathan Edwards in New England that they all believed that, that uh, Hebrew and Greek were essential to training in, in theological seminaries so that you will understand the words of the prophets in their original language. In fact, uh, Edwards believed that if you studied... Studying Hebrew was the closest to getting back to the Adamic language, the language of Adam. Okay? Now, uh, has, that kind of, has that tradition kind of carried forward? Yes. Yeah, it has. If you're going to go study today in the Dallas Theological Seminary, you're going to have probably at least four semesters of Hebrew and probably a couple of semesters of Greek. Because the idea is read it in the original language because then you can bypass uh, whatever errors happened with King James. Because, by the way, that was that Church of England thing. We're not sure if they got it right. you know, Or, or whoever else is translating it in some other language. We don't know if they're getting it right. 
Uh, so the best way to bypass all of those people, especially those Catholic people that had this forever, we don't know what they put in. And, okay, you got to get back to the original stuff. Get back to that. And then you'll know. Okay? I happen to agree with that. <laughs> I think there's great value in learning, le learning and at least having access to Hebrew and Greek, and I use it all the time. Part of my own study is I have things like a little ha handy little dude called the online called the Blue Letter Bible. That if I'm looking at a verse in the Bible and I don't understand that, part of my part of my looking at it is like I'll click quickly go to the Blue Letter Bible. I'll pipe, pop in the verse and it will give it to me in Greek if it's New Testament or Hebrew if it's Old Testament and say here's what that word originally meant. Okay? So I think there's great value in it and I think Joseph understood that. So uh, and, and that was a common understanding among the people at, in, the, in the 19th century that it's a really good thing if you're going to be a preacher to understand Hebrew and Greek. So so he's probably right on target. Um, so they're going to send people out. They actually thought that they had found a guy in Cleveland that uh, might be able to help them. Uh, but he was really booked and uh, too busy. But he says, I have a nephew uh, by the name of Joshua uh, from, that's been living in New York. He's recently out here. I think he would be interested. His name is Joshua Satius. And they said, so they, they put a bid, they, they reached out to Joshua Satius, and they said, would you be willing to come and teach a Hebrew school to this group of crazy Mormons in Kirtland? Um, and, and Joshua Satius says, yep, be glad to do that. Sounds like fun. And he comes. Uh, so Joshua Satius will come on January 26th uh, and begin a class uh, with these guys. Um, now, by the way, I, I will tell you that it's inter it's Joshua Satius, and I didn't completely understood this when I was uh, I went to a lecture from Matthew Gray at BYU, and he was talking about the fact that uh, Joshua Satius has a, had a particular branch of the way that he pronounced Hebrew words. And I don't remember exactly what that particular branch was. But it's distinctive enough that it's easy to tell that for the next, till, till the time that Joseph dies, uh, any time he uses Hebrew, we can tell that he's using satious lexicons. That he's using satious' way of looking at Hebrew. Okay, So we can see that influence. Okay. He sets up a seven-week class. There are four classes, 120 students, up on the third floor of the temple. Um, this, is, this is that room. We'll talk about this room in just a second. Yeah? Were there any women in that class? I'm glad you, should, I'm glad you would ask. Uh, primarily it was men. And it ticked off a few women. <laughs> Who are also anxious to be able to learn, but you know you're doing your women folk and your cooking and your and your childhood stuff, and and this is for the leadership of the church. But some of the women were stepping up and going, "Oh no, you don't. <laughs> we we want to learn this too." So we have we have a few instances, not many. Uh, one is a mother of four. She, that, that she's getting a hold of the books and stuff like that. She's doing her. Is she allowed to sit in the class? Uh, no. But self-study, her husband's coming home and saying, here's what we're finding and, and all that. One of the, 
One of the students was as young as 14, Rhoda. She, so there was interest. And if they had opened this up, I think they'd have found uh, that a lot of people were interested because uh, there was a sense that says for us to understand it, we've got to learn Hebrew. You know, we've got to learn this stuff. Okay? Uh, now, Satius uh, then creates, as he starts going through a first class, this is the most advanced group, the ones that seem to be catching it most quickly. And that includes Joseph. Uh, that includes W.W. Um, Phelps, that's Sidney Rigdon, that's uh, Oliver Cowdery. Um, and and uh, it does not include, Truman Madsen tells the story of uh, a couple of people that weren't very good at this and really couldn't care less. One was Brigham Young and the other one was Heber C. Kimball. <laughs> Truman Madsen tells the story of uh, Heber C. Kimball in the class. They're trying to teach him a Hebrew uh, word and it's just not getting in. <laughs> he just can't get it. And there's a moment when Joseph looks at him and says, you will learn that verb or I will whip you. <laughs> and Heber C. goes, go ahead and whip. <laughs> Is just not getting in. <laughs> yes, they did. But I do remember some some long nights uh, when I was studying Hebrew uh, at BYU, and I had and I'm very much in sympathy that sometimes it's just because you're not just seeing the letters now you're seeing just the squiggle and you got to figure out the squiggle oh that's a sh and then what does that make that word and it's just it's it's difficult it, it's hard sledding um, to, to kind of get this so I'm I'm really in sympathy with this uh, but there is there is this first class uh, at some point uh, Satius will describe um, Joseph as uh, insatiable when it comes to learning this and he would like go pound on his door late at night and say I was working on this what does this mean and what does this mean and everything and he described as Joseph was like a calf trying to suck off of three cows that <laughs> 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 he just could not learn enough you know he's just after it and after and after it um, uh, but the belief was is that W.W. Uh, Phelps again was probably uh, the best at, at learning all of this kind of stuff. Well, I, think Kevin, I think he also said, said that Joseph was not the best student, but he was the most enthusiastic. Yeah, he was the most enthusiastic. That he just so here's a, again he's being driven I think by the fact that he wants to learn this stuff, but he's loving this stuff, and I think it's and I think his mind and heart is opening up here, and he's just absorbing all of all of this. Okay. Who is teaching? Uh, Joshua Satius. Joshua Satius is is actually personally teaching this class, and he does it for about seven weeks. They will they will do he will teach right up through the dedication of the Kirtland Temple, and then and then he goes back. So it's only a seven week course, but but he will say when he leaves, he gives Joseph a, a certificate at the end of the course and says Joseph is translating satisfactorily to my to my belief, and he can do this, and if he continues with this. He become very proficient at Hebrew. 
So he's catching on quickly. You got this prophetic power and inspiration to learn knowledge faster. Okay, we know because, for instance, like when Joseph gets to masonry, he will learn all the masonry stuff in like two days. He just absorbs by that point new knowledge and new understanding, and then incorporates it into everything that he's doing. Okay, all right. So along, I thought I would add this uh, uh, along with that I thought was was really interesting. So here, here's here's the problem they get is that. Uh, they just don't have enough books. They don't have enough knowledge. And when Satius shows up uh, to start teaching, he's hauling around this, this lexicon of nouns and verbs in the Hebrew language. And, and Joseph is fascinated with this thing. He's like, oh, we got to have one of those. Can we, can we buy that? And he goes, no, this is my wife's. It's my wife's lexicon. Um, do you think she'd let us buy it? <laughs> And he says, I don't know. Why don't you write her a letter <laughs> to see if Mrs. Satius will let you buy her Hebrew lexicon? Okay. So they do. And we have in the Joseph Smith papers the letter to Mrs. Satius. Now, I'm, I, I want to I quote part of this letter because uh, it gives you an idea, by the way, of how they speak. But it also gives you an idea of what these brethren and sisters believed that they were doing in Kirtland right at this moment. Why were they undergoing this whole project? Okay, um, and, and they didn't really believe in punctuation, so bear with me here. So this is from the letter. We have the privilege of addressing you a few lines through the kindness of Professor Satius, who we believe, listen closely, we believe has been sent to this institution through the immediate directions of God to promote the cause of truth and benefit a fallen world. Wow. <laughs> Professor Satius is here to help us benefit a fallen world. By teaching us Hebrew, we're going to understand the word better, we're going to teach with greater power, and we will save Israel, Israel, uh, by learning Hebrew, which I think is a fascinating connection, okay? Now, listen to the, how they viewed this project. We are, we are in this led to be, to believe, no, 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 we should say thankful, yes, okay. We're led this to be thankful to our Redeemer in whose glorious cause we are engaged. As we are anxiously desiring to become acquainted with an individual of virtue and piety, Professor Satius, an individual of virtue and piety who understood perfectly those languages in which the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments were originally written, as our only object is to do good, to lay aside error when we discover it, Forsake evil and follow righteousness and truly be better prepared and qualified to render assistance to our fellow man and glorify the name of God. The name of the Lord. That's, in a, in a nutshell, that's what they believe they were doing. I think that's really cool. And, and God has prepared this wonderful, educated, pious man to come and teach us for which we are so grateful. Uh, that's a good question. Uh, that's the that's the original letter that I've got here on the on the right. Um, 
It, my guess is because they've crossed it out here, they may have originally written this and then copied a letter to her. So they were drafting it together. It was, this wasn't just Joseph. Um, so that's why we have in the archives, we found this letter to her. So what was the, her answer? <laughs> she let him buy the lexicon. <laughs> but in this, in, in this whole idea of forsaking evil and following righteousness, in this our expectations are fully realized. And we trust through the goodness of God to make a proper improvement of the blessing thus given. And we sincerely pray that on the part of your husband, our acquaintance may be of that kind, which we shall ever have cause to bless and adore God, for thus guiding him to this place by his unseen hand. How about that? I just think it's just kind of a, it, part of it's the language of the, uh, the 19th century, but still it's, it gives you a sense of just what they felt like they were about uh, in learning Hebrew. Okay. All right. So just to give you, uh, I'll take just a, a another couple of minutes on this and then, and then uh, we'll, we'll finish up with where they go next. But just gives, gives you an idea. Um, so, and you, the one, one of the places that you get to see what effect all this had was uh, 1844 in the King Follett Discourse in Nauvoo. This is two months before Joseph dies. He has about 20,000 people in front of him. And uh, here's what he says. Trying to, talking about the nature of God. I will go to the very first Hebrew word, uh, Bereshit, uh, in the Bible, and make a comment on the first sentence in the history of creation. In the beginning, I want to analyze the word Bereshit, B, which is in and through and by and everything else, and Rosh, the head, and then with Ith on the end. Now, Let's stop for a sec. Part of what he did when he was doing, redoing the, the, the translation of the New Testament is that he, would, he was using Adam Clark's commentary to go through and make a lot of changes. And then he went back behind it and then started editing and adding under, the, under inspiration, making changes. But he would often look at scriptures in the New Testament and even in the Old Testament and go, no, that word's wrong, we're going to add this, and he would edit. Okay, Watch what he does here. Because he does it with Hebrew too. Where did it come from? When the inspired man wrote it, whoever the inspired man who wrote Genesis, and we don't know who that was, but when the inspired man wrote it, he did not put the first part, the B, there. But a man, an old Jew without any authority, put it there. <laughs> He thought it too bad to begin to talk about the head of any man. It read in the first, well, the first time it was written, the head one of the gods brought forth the gods. This is the true meaning of the words, Roshit bar Elohim signifies the head to bring forth the Elohim. The, uh, him is a, is a plural ending, uh, more than one. So uh, uh, when we talk about Elohim, we're actually talking about a plurality of gods. Okay. Um, so uh, 
The true meaning of the word signifies that the head to bring forth the Elohim, the gods. If you do not believe it, you do not have, do not believe the learned man of God. No learned man can tell you any more than what I've told you. Thus, the head god brought forth the head gods in the grand head council. <laughs> Got all of that? <laughs> okay. <laughs> All he's saying is, is that his he, he had an argument with Joshua Satius over Elohim. What do the Jews believe? About how many gods? There is one God. And he did go back and forth with Satius. He says, wait a minute. So you're saying him is a plural ending. Yes. So Elohim, translate Elohim, that would be God's. And he says, no. Satya says, no, that doesn't make any sense. There's only one God. Yeah, but this is plural. He says, ah, that's kind of anachronism. <laughs> but it says plural. No, I know, but there's only one God. <laughs> Finally, Satya goes, you can translate it however you want it. <laughs> okay. Um... And so, yeah, the Jewish, Jewish writers on that, this bothers them a lot. Because they say, I know it's a plural ending everywhere else except this time. Because there's only one God, it can't be plural because there's only one God. Yes, but it's plural. That's not, doesn't make sense, I know. So, anyway. That give you an idea of how he used that. So a lot of the things that his understanding of theology came from starting to understand the original words of Hebrew and being able to translate it well enough to see what he was looking at and then, and then have inspiration come behind it and open up the whole thing for him. Okay, does that make sense? Okay. All right. That said, let's, let's uh, it now gets more fun. <laughs> Because uh, I, I need you to understand kind of what now, what now comes with this background and we're studying Hebrew and everything. What is the next, what is the next step that's coming? Well, remember if we go all the way back to January 2nd, 1831, five years earlier. In D&C 38, the Lord says, uh, I say unto you, this, they're still in New York. They haven't come yet to Kirtland, so we're five years ago. I am in your midst, and you cannot see me, but the day cometh that you shall see me, and know that I am. Therefore, gird up your loins and be prepared. The kingdom is yours. The enemy shall not overcome. And I say that you are clean, but not all. You haven't been completely cleansed. And there's none else uh, with whom I am well pleased. And, and that ye may escape the power of the enemy... And be gathered unto me a righteous people without spot and blameless. That's about to be really important here. Wherefore, for this cause I gave unto you the commandment that you should go to the Ohio. Leave New York and go to the Ohio. Why? There I'm going to do two things for you. Number one, I will do what? I will give you my law. Okay, I'm going to give you my law. And then the second part is... And there you shall be endowed with power from on high. So we got to get to the Ohio and two amazing things are going to happen. We're going to learn the law. We got the law of consecration. 
But also we're going to be endowed with power. And for years, especially Joseph wanted and sought after diligently to have his people endowed with power. And I, I think he was kind of looking at it too. Went, this would have been helpful in Missouri if we'd been endowed with power. Because apparently if we have that power, we'll escape the power of our enemy too. Okay, so here we go. So now we, we, we are in uh, January 21st, 1836. And so now we're five years later. What happens in 1836? Generally in church history? It's the dedication of the Kirtland Temple. That happens March 27th. So we are 60 days away from the dedication of the temple. Uh, April 3rd, 1836, what happens? Section 110? The returning of the keys. That's right. That's, again, we're 60 days out. So here he is in January, and he's got a group of guys, leaders, that he's got to get ready for the dedicatory services, and they have to be prepared to handle everything that's coming. And they're not there yet. Now, what he does on the night of January 21st, 1836, we don't have any records as to why he went, why he did what he did. We only have the scriptures. He, he didn't write, he didn't receive a revelation that we have record of. Um, but in his understanding, and to move these and propel these guys forward to be ready for the dedication of the temple. He begins on January 21st, a series of steps to get them ready. Um, and again, we're not working off of any published revelation. He just, here's what we're going to do, and they do it. Okay? Um, now, let me ask, how, how many have been to the uh, Kirtland Temple? How many have been to the third floor attic of the Kirtland Temple? Okay. Now, how would you describe, how would you guys describe the third floor? It's just, Addict. It's divided into several rooms. Yes. Okay. So, so you come to the top of the stairs and you look down there and there's a long hallway and there are a series of rooms that jut off of that main hallway. Okay. And you walk all the way past all of those rooms and then what do you get at the back of the attic of the Curtain Temple, third floor? His office. His office. The, 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 yeah, the back room where Joseph had his office. What we're going to describe happened in that third room all the way back. It's always a little bit frustrating. Uh, been back there a couple of times. One guy had no idea that we were at and the other one got it. The other one knew, let me tell you basically what we think kind of happened up here. But even then, they're a community of Christ and they don't have the full import of what really happened on, on January 21st, 1836 in that back room. But to set it up, let me go to Exodus 40. Some of you are going to recognize these words. This is where we think Joseph got the directions for now what to do. Because if he's looking at, we're about to have a temple, what do we do with a temple? I don't know. Let me go back into the Old Testament and see how they prepared for the, the tabernacle. And how did they prepare for the temple of Solomon? How do you get the guys ready to officiate in the temple? So here's what he read. 
And thou shalt bring Aaron and his sons unto the door of the tabernacle and wash them with water. So first they need to be what? Cleansed, washed. Thou shalt put on upon Aaron the holy garments and anoint him and sanctify him that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. So, so if I'm going to get these guys ready, I have to wash them, I have to clothe them, okay, in, in, in the uh, garments. Um, thou shalt bring his sons and clothe them with coats, give them robes. And thou shalt anoint them as they as thou didst anoint their father, that they may minister unto me in the priest's office, for their anointing shall surely be an everlasting priesthood throughout their generations. Now, if you're gonna anoint, uh, you're gonna you're gonna use the little uh, the little bowl, the little potter thing of, of oil, okay? So you're going to hold that in your left hand, and then you're going to anoint with your right hand. Uh, we have in Joseph's records him saying that that's exactly what he did. He said he held, he held the oil in his left hand, and he anointed with his right hand, placing his hands collectively on Joseph Smith Sr., because he was the eldest, and then they pronounced blessings and anointed him with oil on his head and on his face. Okay. So Joseph took six men to his office at the back of the third floor. The two high councils were placed in the adjacent rooms to wait. So he's going to take six brethren, put them in the back room, then in those adjacent classrooms he puts the the high council of Zion the 12 guys from Missouri he's going to take the 12 guys of the Kirtland high council put them in there so and it's, and say to them you guys just need to wait we'll be to you soon <laughs> he's then going to go in there meet with that six and this is where they're going to take the oil they're going to pronounce the blessings. They will anoint and bless. They will, they will be washed. They will put on uh, the robes. They will anoint one another. They will pronounce blessings on one another. Uh, uh, they washed, anointed, and blessed each man. They then blessed each other. Um, um, Joseph Smith Sr. will then bless Joseph Smith Jr. And he will say, I, I pronounce upon you all the blessings of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is his exact wording, is what he says. Okay? So they are, they're pronouncing all of these blessings. Now, after they get all of this done, a vision opens up to Joseph, right in the middle of all of this washing and anointing. And that, and that vision is section 137, of the Doctrine and Covenants. Okay, let's see. Let me do this. By the way, it is interesting to me that Section 37 was not added to the Doctrine and Covenants until like uh, 1977. I was on my mission when this was actually added. Um, 
So, he's standing in the midst. He, the vision opens up. He's the only one who sees it. He's able, they're able to stop kind of the anointing and blessings going on and, and write down what Joseph is seeing. Uh, and he says, the heavens were opened up to us. I, held the cele- I beheld the celestial kingdom of God. Uh, can't, whether in the body or out, I cannot tell. He's using Paul's words. Paul said the same thing in 2 Corinthians 12. Um, I saw the transcendent beauty of the gate. I saw the blazing throne of God. I saw the beautiful streets of the kingdom. I saw, oh, I saw Father Adam, Abraham, and my father and mother. Now, I think that's interesting. He's standing there in the room, and he's seeing this vision. And at some point he might have gone, no, Father's still here. (laughs) He's, He's right He's still here. <laughs> uh, wait a minute. I'm seeing him in the celestial kingdom. Well, that's weird. <laughs> okay. So what does that tell you about what he's seeing? It's a future. Okay. Wow. Oh, Dad. You're going to be... Wow, that's very cool. Okay. I see I see uh, Adam and Abraham and, and my brother Alvin. Huh? Stop. Alvin? Alvin dies in 18... 18- 27, 1824, 4, 6. Um, and uh, when he dies, um, if you've if you've ever been to his grave, uh, Alvin's grave is just barely up the street, almost to the canal in, in Palmyra. And you've got the four churches on all four corners of that. The, the, one, the one on the southeast corner is the Presbyterian Church, which is where Alvin's funeral was held, uh, the Presbyterian minister. Uh, the Presbyterian minister, and they were willing to do it because Mama Smith was still a member but the preacher, Alvin, had never joined the church. So the preacher at the funeral says, sorry, but basically he's probably going to hell. <laughs> Wasn't baptized into the church, didn't believe, didn't get the sacraments. Uh, I hate to say it, but yeah, he's probably already in hell. So that's kind of what they got left with. Um, verse 6. And I marveled how it was that Alvin had obtained an inheritance in that kingdom. Seeing that he had departed this life before the Lord had set his hand to gather Israel. Wait a minute. Section 76 probably says he's ending up like in the terrestrial kingdom. Gotta be, right? So it goes, wait a minute. He's there? And marveled how Benson he had obtained an inheritance in that kingdom, seeing that he had departed this life before the Lord had set his hand. And seven, thus came the voice of the Lord unto me, saying, All who have died without a knowledge of this gospel, who would have received it had they been permitted to tarry, shall be heirs in the celestial kingdom of God. Wow. Well, that's a jump up. Suddenly, now, I find it fascinating... Oh, and by the way, and also all those who die henceforth without a knowledge of it, who would have received it with all their hearts, shall be heirs of this kingdom. Would they be baptized by proxy? <laughs> well, okay, now you're asking the right question. We know. 
I, I think that I think that Joseph if if, if you're if you're the, the spirit or the Lord wouldn't that have kind of been the, kind of this cool next verse where you would have said and also they who die henceforth from the knowledge of it uh, would have received it with all their hearts shall be heirs of this kingdom because there's going to be a uh, there's a wonderful thing called baptism for the dead that you can now do for your people and this is how they will get it wouldn't that have been the nice place to put it right there interesting uh, no <laughs> no this is 1836 uh, baptism for the dead won't be revealed for four more years I think it would have been a great place, but whatever reason, they weren't ready yet. Uh, and I wonder, for instance, one, the temple isn't dedicated yet, but what is still two months away? Yeah. Elijah is not here yet. So they, have, they don't yet have the keys. Probably would have been really frustrating to say to them, yeah, you can do baptism for the dead, but not yet. <laughs> So it's left out for four more years. So Joseph is kind of left with this, wow, there's another jump here in our knowledge of the plan, but I don't know how that works. I'm left without a knowledge of this. Okay. Um, we're going to go through all this again. So... Th think about the think about the progression now of what we're what just happened. The the gospel just took another step, another jump forward. Okay. In terms of their knowledge and their understanding of it. Just a quick reminder. As far as they understood it, when the church started, uh, what they had based on uh, what, the, what the heavens looked like, they really had things like John 5.29, which was like the heaven and hell. They had the Book of Mormon and King Benjamin going, yep, either, either uh, live with God or fire and brimstone, hell. This is what, for the vast majority of the Book of Mormon, the people understood at that moment. You don't hear it after the Savior comes, but you do hear it before. Okay, so they understood that, and then remember, then they get section 76, and they start learning about multiple glories, but it's all based on obedience. They get that part, so that's, that's a step above the Book of Mormon in terms of their understanding. That's cool. There's, not, there's more than one kingdom. Then when we get to section 88, what we talked about a couple of weeks ago, wait a minute, there are multiple glories, but it's based on the choice to become like God. That all that want to be like God, that want to be with Him, the Savior will tutor them and work with them however long it takes to get them there. So suddenly it's not so much about obedience in this life as much as the desires of their heart and how they do in the eternities and the whole judging period is going to take more millennia before that is final okay so we understood that part and then we understood when we get to Nauvoo in 1840 there's baptisms for the dead and now we can see how we're going to save our families as well and bring them along with us and we're actually you picture the again the temple of the altar almost like an anvil uh, and they're and they're forging together the links to their family and and understand that 
Well, now we, we in section 137, we get one more little piece and it comes right in here to say, wait a minute, this is a vision of the celestial kingdom and because now I'm seeing Alvin and I'm seeing that there is one more piece here, but he doesn't yet have the baptism for the dead piece, the proxy part. So again, I just think as we've tried to do all along here, you just watch what's happening, this progression rolling forward. Okay? All right. Uh, okay, let's do this. It might be a good place for us to... Okay. So, so what's going to happen here then uh, over... They will have this experience. Joseph will have this vision. Um... The other brethren will now start to have visions as well. The six in that room. Some are going to see the face of the Savior. The Spirit is opening up. And they are just caught up in kind of a Pentecostal moment. of uh, Some are speaking in languages. Um, and they just had this great revelatory experience that night. Okay. Now. In the middle of all of that, Joseph will then come out of his office. He'll walk down to the next classroom where the, the high council, uh, probably of Zion, are, are there and they're, and they're waiting. Wow, what's been going on back there? <laughs> okay, Joseph runs through the same thing. Washing, anointings, uh, blessings, all those kind of things. And they start to have revelatory experiences. Okay, then he will go from there to the next classroom where the other Quorum of the Twelve is sitting there, or not Quorum of the Twelve, the High Council, and they will do the same thing. Washings, anointings, uh, blessing each other, um, and they have incredible experience. So they get like, everybody is, is kind of having these experiences. And it's just, January 21st is an amazing moment in, uh, in their life. Um, and then, um, and then it says, Joseph says in his journal, uh, we went home at one o'clock in the morning, kind of exhausted. Um, they will, by the way, then they will come back, they will get up the next morning, um, and they'll kind of, kind of get through their day a little bit. They're studying in uh, Hebrew school. Satius is going to start in a week or so, but they're already kind of studying school of the elders. And then the, that night they'll do the same thing again. And they have all... And so, it's a, like they keep having blessings and visions and, and everybody's just kind of spiritually being lifted in this temple that's not even finished yet. They're still working on the pulpits downstairs. They're upstairs in this attic just having this incredible set of experiences. And, and uh, in fact, and so, so what we have, we have this season of endowment of power that begins this the setup, and we're going to be talking about the dedicatory sessions and everything next week. But uh, I need you to see that. Uh, so on January 21st, they receive their washing and anointings, and the endowment of power is already starting to happen. It's not a single switch that gets flipped. It is this season that prepares all these guys to roll them uh, forward. Okay. Um, the Hebrew school will start on January 26th. Um, 
<laughs> By the way, anybody know what other, what other important thing is happening right about here? <laughs> the Alamo falls on March 6th. <laughs> the Alamo. Okay? This is going simultaneously. If you kind of put in a his, historical context, you got, well, this is the other kind of great thing here happening, right? Okay? Uh, March 27th is the dedication of the temple. Uh, we'll get the session and then the, the uh, Pentecostal moment later that night on that one. April 3rd, the priesthood keys are restored. And then San Jacinto. <laughs> and, and Texas becomes a republic. Okay, I just think it's interesting that you get kind of... I've always thought th those things almost run kind of in parallel, kind of cool. But um, anyway, so let me finish with this, and it, and it's out of the it's out of the Joseph Smith papers. It's out of Joseph's journal. Okay. Friday morning. <laughs> Remember, till 1 o'clock in the morning they've had these experiences. So here's Friday morning, the 22nd, the next morning. Friday morning, the 22nd, attended the schoolroom at the usual hour. But instead of pursuing our studies, um, we spent the time rehearsing to each other the glorious scenes that had transpired the pre preceding evening while attending the ordinance of the Holy Anointing. The next, then that night, they will do the same thing. They'll have that experience. And then, if you look at um, the one on... I don't think I can get it there. Nope, I'm not. Oh, there we go. No, I'm skipping over it. Anyway, the, the Joseph's journal for the next day says, we just could, uh, we decided to not, to uh, hold off on the studying because we're still so swept up in all of this. He's like, we're just not, we're, we're a little distracted. <laughs> by what's happening to us at night. Our studies aren't going very well. Uh, and, and it took, it took uh, starting the school on the 26th with Satius to kind of get them back on track with their studying because on the 22nd and 23rd and 24th they were just blown away by everything. And they would see each other and just, what did you see? Well, I saw this. Wow. I saw that. Man, what did, what did the Savior look like? Oh, he looked like this. And what about this? And, the, and they would actually spontaneously do things like, brother, I have a blessing for you. And then they would start giving each other blessings. They're just, there is a spiritual power that is resting over Kirtland for the 60 days prior to the temple. And they're just being swept in and they're having a hard time concentrating uh, until Satius kind of gets them back on track. So, anyway, comments on, on that. This is a very cool moment. Yeah. I think. I think what he said was that they went back to school, but they didn't much feel like 
yeah, the infield, yeah. We're just not studying. We're just not, we're a little, wow. <laughs> you know, I, I, in some ways, you know, you have a, uh, a major moment like, like 9-11 uh, or something like that. Imagine, you know, going to school the next day and saying, let's talk about, you know, something else because you're so caught up in what happened the day before. And they were, they were very much that way. This was outside of their experience. They were being so lifted by all of this. Yeah. Do we know if Sanchez ever joined the church? Was he interested? Or? He, he wasn't. He wasn't. He just kind of came in for seven weeks. And in fact, we don't have any record of him after that seven weeks. No. no. But he was... Uh, but he was really instrumental in helping the, the brethren at that point and, and did a great job of teaching and, and was uh, apparently a very good teacher, a uh, very caring teacher. So, All right. Well, that is... Um, so that's the run-up. Um, next week we will talk about uh, the, the experience of the dedication of the temple, the... Uh, experience with uh, the coming of the Savior and the return of the keys and then the very dark period that comes after that I don't know if we'll get to that but every vision has a has a fall and this is and the fall is coming for these guys so uh, I leave you my my testimony that uh, these kind of experiences are just so amazing uh, and they happen they're real and, and recorded in so many other places. And I leave that testimony with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.